before I introduce our speaker for today, I just want to say as an encouragement, it's been uh, wonderful seeing you guys really living out what we're talking about in the book of Acts, which is just a simple invitation to reaching out to your friends to come with you on Sundays. And uh, I love the fact that many of you, uh, when you think about what does it mean for me to reach out to some of my friends, one of the simplest things and easiest things you can do is to invite your friends, folks who stop going to church or don't go to church or non-Christian, and invite them to be here on Sunday so they could hear the gospel and encounter the community of God. So I want to encourage you guys to continue to do that as we finish our book of Acts. Uh, about two months ago, uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Sung Chan Ra from North Park. How many of y'all know Sung Chan? Okay. Are you here, Sung Chan, by the way? Sung Chan, is he here? No? Okay. So this guy, man, I get a phone call like at 940 and 950 because he was supposed to bring our guest speaker today. And he's all, hey, I'm lost. I'm at your office. And I'm like, you've been at church like 10 times, and you live in Chicago. How could you be lost? He's like, well, I typed in your church office address. So he was hanging out at our church office. So he finally brought our speaker here. He contacted me two months ago and said, hey, uh, we're having this conference called Four Days for Justice at North Park, and we've got some great speakers coming. Would you be interested in hosting one? I said, Absolutely. I love not working on Sundays. So I said, fine, who is it? And he says, uh, uh, his name is Richard Twist. And I had heard about Richard from various circles. He's spoken at Urbana and various other conferences, and he is a well-known speaker. Uh, let me go ahead and just kind of read uh, a little bit. I don't want to mess this up, Richard, so just short, okay. So just as an introduction, Richard Twist is a member of the, you're going to have to help me out here, Sinkangu Band of Rosebud Lakota Sioux Tribe. Pretty good? Okay. And I butcher that up, bro. You're going to tell me later, okay? Since, seven, since 1974, he has lived and walked as a follower of the Jesus Way. He's been married to his wife, Catherine, since 1976. and They've raised four respectful, caring sons. His vision and ambition is to help people and communities come to know and experience what it means to live in a good way. The good way speaks of both a life free from all manner of destructive forces that would seek to oppress and ruin lives an empowerment to live healthy and productive ones spiritually, physically, and socially. The creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, has made this possible for all people, tribes, and nations. And as we walk in this Jesus way, he gives wisdom and power to live caring, respectful, and loving lives in this world, to live in authentic harmony with God, people, and creation, the good way. So I want to introduce you to Richard this morning. And as he comes up, give a round, thunderous applause All right, thank you. Well, it really is a privilege for me to come and hang out with a community like this. And I'm especially grateful for uh, the courage of uh, uh, Peter to invite me, never having really met, uh, maybe perused the website. And I pastored a church for 13 years, so if you've never met a guest speaker, you sort of like it's a shot in the dark a little bit. And uh, so I consider this a trust on your part to come and hang out with the people who call this place home. So as he said, my name is Richard Twiss. Uh, my father is an Oglala Lakota Sioux from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And my mother is a Sichahu Lakota 
from the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, which is also in South Dakota. So I was born uh, among my mother's people uh, on the reservation in South Dakota. Uh, But I also have a a little bit of, I have a great-great-grandfather who was a man named McLean. And I have a great-great-grandfather who was a a man named Larravee, Frenchman. And then I have a great-great-great-grandfather whose name was Twiss, an Englishman. Uh, so I am a Lakota, and then I have some English, Irish, and French blood polluting or coursing uh, through my veins. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, in the Lakota language, we would say I would be like Ieska, which means mixed blood, which means I can play cowboys and Indians all by myself. <laughs> and uh, unless I'm having a uniquely psychotic episode, I almost always win. Uh, it's when there's a, like a, a tie or a stalemate that I feel particularly sort of internally fractured at the moment, uh, trying to figure out, well, who am I? Anybody ever asked that question? Who am I? I'm a little this. I'm a little that. Am I American? Am I, am I a hyphenated human being? Am I Asian American, African American, Native American? Uh, who am I? So it seems to be a big question on a lot of people's minds today. So among Lakota people, when we would gather in a formal setting like this, we would always begin by saying, which means all of my relatives or all of my relations. So it's a way of saying that uh, I come from a people behind me, I'm a part of a people with me, and I belong to a people who aren't here yet. Uh, So it's like this notion of a seven-generation continuum. I learned from the three generations before me. They help tell me who I am. So when I introduce people, I always say, this is my mother, this is my father, these are their tribes, this is where they come from. So that helps situate me as a human being in this world. Uh, And then I'm living my life out in the here and the now, uh, but I'm living it with the consideration that my great-great-grandchildren are watching me, listening to me, learning from me, even though they're not born yet. So the decisions that I make for today... Uh, in what way are they help preparing the future for those who aren't here yet? So it, it delivers me from the sense of being this uh, autonomous individual who, whose only choices affect and, and me and what matters most is me and my happiness. Well, no, I have those who will follow after me, so how am I help making a way for them? Then I'm related to things above, I'm related to things below, and I'm related to things all around So as a human being, I'm a relative of creation, and all of these things are my relatives. And you are my relatives as two-leggeds. So the creator of heaven and earth came to the earth in the form of a two-legged, a human being, and he walked among us. So as human beings, we're all related. So our word is teoshpai, which means extended family. But because of what I think God has done for us through Christ at the cross, now we sort of embody that notion of teoshpai. So now I am your Lakota brother. And you are my brothers and sisters. And as I look around the room, I might have some aunties and uncles here. Uh, But I would be an uncle to many of you, the majority of you, and a brother to so many others of you. Uh, So then when we find ourselves in Jesus, then we become situated with all of creation. Uh, And then we become united together in, in that place, in the beauty way, this harmony way of following Jesus. So when we greet one another uh, casually, uh, we say how kola. How is like a hello, and kola is friend. So hello, friend. 
So after church day, you can meet somebody up in the back and you say, Cola, what's up? Or something uh, like that. Uh, then when we say goodbye, we say Coca-Cola. Uh, uh, no, we don't really say that. And then, uh, except when we say goodbye to white people, then we say un-cola. <clears throat> no, we don't really say that either. I was in this Asian ba- or this a Chinese Baptist church one time, and so the pastor said to me after, he said, well, what do you say to Chinese people? Mountain Dew? And uh, so I never thought of that, but that would probably work. So uh, as uh, Pastor mentioned, my wife Catherine and I, we've been married uh, since 1976, and we have these four boys. That's like 35 years or four or close to 35, something like that. And, um, and so my wife, uh, she is a Caucasian woman. So she has blonde hair. I used to have. She has blonde hair. Uh, she is the most beautiful gray-haired woman you could imagine. When I married her, uh, she was like she was like a hottie. Um, <laughs> she is like progress. She's like smoking hot nowadays. And so beautiful gray hair and blue eyes and very fair skin. And, um, and I captured her in a raid uh, down into uh, uh, Northern California. As a young man, I was leading to a, I listened to a Beach Boy songs about California girls, so I thought I'd go capture me one. And um, so it worked out pretty good all these years later. So we, in our marriage, uh, we have had to learn to be human beings. So I'm a better human being because of her. Uh, because oftentimes she is the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I even call her that sometimes. Uh, and so, and she's a better human being uh, because of uh, me. And so, we are better human beings. Our children will be better human beings than we were, hopefully, as as these bettering human beings. So, um, I pastored a mostly white church in Vancouver, Washington, right across the river from Portland, from 1982 to 1995. Um, did I say predominantly white? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I love white people. And so I'm married to a beautiful woman whose mother was born and raised in Wales and whose father's a second-generation North Dakotan Norwegian. Uh, and so our boys have this Viking, Lakota, English, Scottish deal going on. Uh, so they've had to figure out who are they as human beings. And uh, in all immigrant communities today, be it the Puerto Rican community from this area, as we were talking about earlier, uh, the Korean uh, community, am I first generation? Should I speak the language? Who am I? Uh, what about my parents? What about who I'm connected to back home? Do I know my history? What is it that makes me a human being? Who am I? Uh, what if I'm part German or the proverbial Heinz 57 American? Uh, I'm a little bit of everything. Who am I? Um, and so sometimes as Christians, we want to take the easy way out. We, just, we want to just say, well, you know, in Galatians, at the end of the third chapter, it says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free nor male or female. So uh, all that stuff, and when God looks at us, he doesn't see color. So then I think, I didn't know God was visually impaired. <clears throat> I thought he had really good vision. Um, so it's easy to sort of homogenize us ourselves and say we're Christians. But what is it that makes a Christian? What is a follower of Jesus? So I want to invite you a little bit into my story uh, in this journey of following Jesus uh, and, and finding our way as community. 
So Jesus said, love your neighbor like yourself. But you don't, if you don't know who you are and you can't love who that person is, then how can you love your neighbor? Uh, because we're all cultural beings. We're all influenced by our parents' values, our cultural values, our American values, hopefully a few biblical values thrown in there uh, to become this community of uh, hope, uh, the beautiful community that we all long for. Uh, so somebody said that God loves stories so much that he created human beings. So all of your lives are a story, and they all have a history. And so uh, I'm going to share some of my story, and then we're all connected to the bigger story of God's work among us. So let me pray. So creator of heaven and earth, Jesus, thank you for your life and all the people here. And some may know you in a very personal way. Some may know you uh, from a distance. Uh, But Jesus, your Holy Spirit is working in our lives to help us become better human beings. And so thank you for this time, and I pray you'd help us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I want to just begin by uh, reflecting on a a text in uh, uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 1 and verse 14. And uh, in the message uh, version, uh, whatever you want to call it, it says that the Word of God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So whose hood did God move into? So here you have a Jehovah God, creator of all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it and everybody who hangs out there. So that God came to the earth in the form of a human being. And so the hood he moved into was this little Indian village. Now, I'm going to use the terms Native American, First Nations, Indian, Aboriginal, uh, elevated, superior, most godlike. <laughs> Uh, as interchangeable uh, terms for Native Americans. Uh, And so, uh, who's who? So God moved into this little Indian village in Bethlehem, uh, among a part of the world, Asia Minor, among a tribe of people, the Hebrews, and a sub-tribe, the tribe of Judah. So when God came to us through this woman, Mary, this tribal woman, and the history of this tribal people, Uh, when God was born, God had black hair, black eyes, and very dark skin because he was an aboriginal boy. Uh, We even gave him all kinds of Indian names. We called him uh, Bright and Morning Star. Uh, We called him Lily of the Valley. Uh, We called him the Rock. Uh, We called him the Rose of Sharon. And finally, we just called him Chief Cornerstone. And so here was God. Uh, He came and was born. So now uh, Jesus goes to the wilderness. He goes into the Jordan River with this medicine man, the shaman named John the Baptizer, who was out wandering around in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey and preaching this message about this one who's going to come. So Jesus is that one, and he comes, and he goes in the water. When he comes out of the water, uh, God the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon God the Son, Jesus. And a voice from God the Father in heaven says, This is my beloved Indian boy in whom my heart is deeply pleased. So that's a paraphrase, right? So this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus comes out of the water, there's no sense of inferiority. There's no sense of shame about his ethnicity. 
uh, about his indigenous identity, about his black hair, his black eyes, his very dark skin, because he receives the affirmation of his father's love rooted in the essence of his cultural identity and being as an aboriginal tribal man, Jesus of Nazareth. So when Jesus comes out of the water, there's no sense of shame or embarrassment on the part of God about his ethnic son. So here comes God born into the hood, the hood of humanity, the hood of a tribe of people. And so those who say today that they are followers of this Jesus have to understand that that's the beginning of the story. It's rooted in the tribal history of a people. So then we fast forward a little bit. The gospel comes across the Atlantic. It got bleached out. They so thoroughly contextualized this story of Jesus coming to their peoples throughout the European nations and then the nation states that they began to actually politicize this Jesus and make him the God of their country and the one who infused their understanding and notions of heaven through the coming of the Bible and the the canonizing of Scripture. So that Jesus became their nation state God. So by the time they came across the Atlantic, it was all mixed up with notions of politics and ideology, and and America became thought of as the new Canaan, the promised land. And so when the Puritans came and they landed and they encountered aboriginal peoples, we were the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Parasites of, of their notions of being a chosen people, being sent by God to evangelize the world in the name of God, the crown, and the Bible. And so our our being, our history, had, had no place in that sort of meta-narrative of European story. So we became a chapter in what later became the myth of America as a Christian nation. And so here we are today as First Nations people trying to figure out, well, who are we now that the crushing tidal wave of colonization has landed upon us? So when Columbus came, we were, say, 40 million people. And then in the late 1900s, we were down to 230,000 native people. So from 40 million to 230,000 in a four-year span, I think we call that genocide nowadays, but not in America. That's manifest destiny, which is our sort of pseudo-theology to justify our kind of unique American imperialism that we take land in the name of God for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven so God will be glorified. That's our American version of imperialism. So we go from 40 million to 230,000. We go from the stewards of the land to now being reduced to these impoverished dependency nations today on our reservations, about 300 reservations. But in the middle of all that, the missionaries are hard at work to evangelize our people. So remember, I love white people, right? I'm married to this beautiful European woman. And uh, so we're just talking Bible today. That's all I'm doing. I'm not talking culture. I'm just talking Bible. I hate it when people say that to me. Um, These notions that you can separate culture from our understanding of the Scripture. All of our thought is infused by our cultural understandings and worldview assumptions and presuppositions. And So the notion, I'm just going to read the Bible at face value. It's like so stupid. Um, like naively stupid. And so read the Bible as a cultural person. Just understand that the beauty of a cultural lens is it allows you to see. 
The liability of it is it prevents you from seeing everything. So the only way to see more is by borrowing your neighbor's telescope. So what does the world look like through their experience? How does their story inform your story about who Jesus is and how we live out this faith as cultural human beings who are organic beings who are growing old and getting ready to pass on and prepare the way for future generations so I don't think that my place, my situation in time and space is the summation of the human experience. I'm just a pilgrim passing through and so are you. I'm just a little bit older pilgrim, a little bit younger pilgrim than some of you. But pilgrims are coming. Maybe that's not a good metaphor for a native guy. (laughs) That word is in the Bible, so I'll have to claim uh, I'm just speaking biblically. So when I came to faith in Jesus in 1974, in 1972, I was a a participant in the takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs office building in Washington, D.C., So 600 of us went to D.C. Uh, We occupied the BIA building, which is like right across the street from today's Vietnam Memorial. We were protesting the federal government's breaking of all of these treaties. It was called the Trail of Broken Treaties Protest. So for eight days, we were surrounded by federal marshals and riot police and tear gas and dogs. They were threatening to remove us. It was like mass hysteria. I'm late 18 years old at the time. At one point, I have an egg carton with gas-filled light bulbs. I'm on the arson squad. We're going to burn the building down. We got cases of dynamite and machine guns and automatic weapons, and we're ready to go to war. So a long time ago, this Lakota warrior crazy horse, Tashunka Witka, before he'd go to battle, he'd say, Hokahe, it's a good day to die. So that was our cry in the BI. It's a good day to die. So we were ready. But the police never invaded the building, and we never had the big fight. And so after eight days, they gave us like $70,000 to leave peaceably. And so we said, all right, we want another one. And so we left. But during that time, I began to open up my soul toward hating white people, hating Christianity. So it was the Catholics who came to my reservation in South Dakota. So during the, the, the last part of the early part of last century, uh, all Native kids were required to, to be, uh, they were removed from their parents' homes and sent to boarding schools. My grandma and grandpa went to boarding schools. My mom and dad went to boarding schools. Um, and so the notion was to kill the Indian and save the man. And most of these boarding schools were run by Christian organizations. So in Canada, it was the Anglicans and Church of Christ. And here in the States, it was a lot of Catholics and some Bastin, uh, uh, Baptist. Whew. And then there were some other uh, Protestant organizations. Uh, and so when my parents and, and, and aunties and uncles went to these boarding schools, they were, their mouths were washed out for speaking their language. They were beaten. They were punished. In all kinds of ways. So you have five, six, and seven-year-old boys and girls taken from their parents' homes, beaten, punished, spanked. Um, and, and this whole hegemony of, of this notion of Americanism landed upon them. And it was done in the shadow of the Bible and the biblical story. So that's how the good news came to us. That was our introduction to good news, these boarding schools. So knowing all of those stories and knowing what my parents went through, uh, I didn't like Christianity. And I especially didn't like Catholicism because that just happened to be the ones who showed up. Uh, in Canada, uh, there was so much sexual abuse uh, that the, the Anglican church almost went bankrupt four or five years ago because they were losing all of these lawsuits about sexual abuse of being cases brought to them by, by Native people my age who had been horribly sexual abused and taking them to court and they were losing. They almost bankrupted the Anglican Church of Canada. Uh, so these boarding schools went all over across America, and the stated policy was, again, kill the Indian, save the man. So I'm coming out of that, and I'm hating white people. 
I'm hating Christianity. And uh, so then I end up in drugs and jail and alcohol. I end up in Hawaii. Uh, and I end up uh, hanging out with all the hippies. So the hippies loved Indians in the 70s because they were all like turning to Mother Earth and tuning in and dropping out. And so, uh, so we'd go take all, we'd eat, there's a part of Maui, and we did all these psychedelic mushrooms with all the hippies, and then we'd all be like out. So then I'd say, one horn of buffalo point to full moon, beaver no, he cannot fly. And then the hippies would go, far out, man. Oh, dude, that is like so deep, man. So I had a good time hanging out with the hippies uh, back in the day. Um, but sometime later, I'm all alone on a beach. Uh, I'm flipping out from an overdose of these mushrooms, and some guys picked me up hitchhiking earlier, some little, uh, uh, I think they were Youth for Christ or Campus Crusade or I don't know what they were. Uh, but I thought they were like little Bible-thumping, narrow-minded, skinny, white boy, Jesus punks. And I didn't want nothing to do with their white man's religion. So I cussed them out, made them let me out of the car. Uh, so after that, here I am on a beach all alone, and I'm flipping out. So I was into Eastern stuff, so I'm trying to do my Hindu mantras, and that's not working. And I'm trying to do my Lakota prayers, and that's not working. I know there's a God. He's just way out there somewhere. Doing a couple Hail Marys just in case. That didn't work. So, so now I'm flipping out. But I just remember the Holy Spirit brought to mind one thing they said. So I just said, Jesus, if you're real and you can do what those guys said, would you come into my life? And immediately the, the fear and paranoia from the drugs evaporated. And there I was. And that's where I came to be a follower of Jesus. And, and at times I'm so grateful I didn't get saved in a church. Because I didn't have to become a Baptist right away. I didn't have to speak in tongues right away. I didn't have to get baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a formulaic way, right away. I didn't have to become uh, a dispensationalist right away. I didn't have to become a Reformed guy right away. I didn't have to become a Calvinist right away. I didn't have to become a dispensationalist right away. I just got to be a follower of Jesus. It was awesome. But then as the years go by, I got to become something. I got to get grounded in the word. So did I get grounded in the word at Bob Jones University? Did I get grounded in the word at Wheaton? Did I get grounded in the word at Biola? Or maybe the Assemblies of God School in Springfield. Where did I get grounded in the word? Yeah, then they made me something. So I used to be a Christian. Now I don't say I'm a Christian anymore. I say I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm trying to get back to Jesus again. I'm not saying it's bad to say you're a Christian. Just for me, if I say I'm a follower of the ways of Jesus, it makes me think about who I am a little bit differently. Now I'm not a follower. I don't ascribe to a set of religious tenets or propositions. It's a relational thing. I can't dodge that one. I can dodge the other one by arguing dogma and theology. I love the bumper sticker that says, my karma swallowed your dogma, or however it goes, something like that. And so, uh, so, so staying real in the moment with Jesus, doing my theology in a contextual way within my community so that your community can get blessed as a result of my contextual theology. So that I can get blessed because of you doing your theology in the context of your time and your history, that can be a blessing to me so I can come and become a better follower of Jesus. What is an Asian American theology? What is a Korean theology? 
I know an American theologist, historically, it's systematic theology that is really just white man theology. So it's rooted in American Eurocentric context. So it's just white man theology. I think we should just call it systematic theology white man theology. Because if it's just white man's theology, that means African theology is just as good as white man theology. It means that Asian theology is just as good as systematic theology. Feminist theology is better than (laughs) systematic theology. So let's make it a level playing field. Let's just say Jesus is about all of us, right? And he's calling us to serve in the context of who we are. But who are we sometimes? What does it mean to be an American now? As our sister was talking about some years ago here, Lincoln Park, right? It had a different social context in terms of the Puerto Rican presence. Where'd they go? I'm saying, where are the white people going? Let's just say the sociologists are right in the year 2040 that America will be half brown and half Caucasian. And amongst baby boomers, we all croak. So I'm 55, so let's say I croak in 25 years or so. So we're the largest generation in American history. We all croak. It leaves a, a, a population vacuum which gets filled by people of color. Because the average white family has 1.6 children per household. The average brown family has three to five children per household. Because we can't, we, you know, we can't afford cable TV, so we got to have something uh, to do. So, so now, 2000, the year 2100 comes along, and now maybe six or seven out of ten Americans are a person of color. What does the Bible say to that? What does it mean to follow Jesus in that imagined future now? Right? It's, it's coming, but we got to live that future now because it's not like God's waking up in 2010 and looking at 2100 and say, oh my gosh, I had no idea it would brown up this fast. I got to go to plan B. So then the Caucasian people, they got to be worried because we know how they are when they move into our neighborhoods. I'm a little nervous about that. The brown people, we got to be a little nervous because we can get even now because we can. Right? We can vote our people into office, put a little lobbying pressure on them folks and get them to pass the legislation that favors us and the way we perceive white people have favored themselves. We can get even because we can. We got more voters than they do. So where is Jesus in all of that? What is the kingdom of heaven inviting us into now as we consider that? So anyway, I'm excited about following Jesus today. I think this is a, this is a critical part in the history of, of humanity, but in terms of the browning of the world, globalization, I mean, I got a lot of issues with a lot of that kind of stuff. So, uh, Pastor, what time am I supposed to quit? No, 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 I don't want to just do that. So tell me. Was it 11, was 11, 15? All right. All right. <laughs> Just trying to do the math. <clears throat> I haven't got past the introduction yet. <clears throat> okay. I'm going to close my Bible now. <laughs> um.
Okay. One time my wife and my son, uh, uh, Ian, were in a teepee at the Portland uh, powwow. Uh, and Ian was talking to his mom about his friend Johnny. So he says to his mom, Mom, my friend Johnny, he's a white boy, right? And my wife says, yes, he is. Uh, he, but she said, Ian, I'm a white woman. And Ian said, no, you're not. And my wife said, Ian, yes, I am. Ian said, no, you're not. So my wife said, Ian, look, I have blonde hair. I have blue eyes. I have very fair skin. I'm a white woman. And she said, like a little cloud of realization passed over his face. And then he said, you better stop saying that or I'm going to tell dad. (laughs) And then like in the strongest language he could muster, he said, he's going to spank your butt. Like powerful words for a five-year-old. So if you would have asked Ian the the day before, is your mom native or white? He would have said she's she's, uh, Indian. She's native. So was Ian's reality based upon fact or perception? Perception, right? So which was more real? Which is more real? Fact or perception? So his reality was his perception. His perception was his reality. So we all have these worldviews that shape our perceptions of what's real. And my concern is how we view the Bible through those kinds of lenses. So I keep saying we need to rescue the Bible from the cowboys. Because when the cowboys read the Bible, metaphorically, in terms of being Indian people, it forbids us from being Indian because our stuff is of the devil and all their stuff is of God. So I would say the church finds us. I mean, Jesus finds us, but the church loses us because it says that God loves you so much that Jesus died on the tree, but he doesn't like you very much. He doesn't like your native dances, your native ceremonies, your native rituals, your native drums. He doesn't like any of that native stuff. So learn the guitar and learn the organ. Those are Christian instruments. And learn some good hill song. Because that's like right out of heaven. Right out of heaven. And don't bring any of that Indian dancing. Don't bring any of that Korean drums in here. Don't bring none of that kind of cultural African, you know, voodoo, Caribbean kind of stuff in my church. You know, we got to have good Eurocentric artistic expression. Now, I'm going to guess it's not an issue for this church. So how, who, who, who gets to be on the stage? What music is heard from the platform? What does the Bible say about music? So when the sun sets in the west, people brush their teeth and they go to bed because it's night. The sun rises in the east, they brush their teeth, they go to work because it's day. Are they watching two different suns do two different things so their lives are impacted in opposite ways day and night? No, they're observing the same natural phenomena. The one sun do the one thing that it does. So why are their lives impacted in opposite ways? It simply has to do with the angle from which they're viewing the event. From this angle that one sun is going down, from this angle that one sun is coming up. So we read about a, about a Harvard professor who can't get into his house and some police show up. And I asked the African-American community, what happened there? And I asked the white community, what happened there? It's like, come on, we're not talking about the same event. How can we come up with two really different points of view about what happened there when we're we're talking about the same natural phenomenon? Now, when the Bible says when we come to faith in Jesus, we become a new creation, all things are passed away. What I was taught, the next part says, and all things become white. That's what I was taught. They didn't say that. 
But when they quoted the Galatians passage, there's either Jew or Greek or bond or free. What they did say was, so don't worry about being native anymore. Just be like us. So here was this Caucasian pastor quoting the Bible, just be like us. Because your Indian culture could distract you. It could be an obstacle to you becoming a disciple. And worse, it could lead you away from Jesus. But our white culture, it's culturally neutral. I mean, it's, it's way more capable of expressing biblical faith than your native culture. So I, I appreciate what one guy said. I forget his name. Hesselgrave, maybe. He said that Christianity is unique and that can be expressed equally well in any culture. But as the Indian guy, I'm saying, well, hold on now. How come that doesn't apply to us? How come the Bible is never read to us so that it gives us a place in the body of Christ except as the perpetual mission field. We're going to go help the Indians. We're going to send our young people to Bible school. We're going to paint their buildings and do vacation Bible school and backyard Bible club. You know, we know how to become Christians. We all know how to get saved. All 2.3 million of us. We know how to get saved. That's not the pressing question in our communities. We got teen suicide that's off the charts. On my reservation two years ago in South Dakota, young men 15 to 25, we had the highest rate of teen suicide in the Western Hemisphere. We got unemployment, 80%, 85%, alcoholism off the charts, diabetes, tuberculosis. We got it all going. Highest number of uh, prison inmates per capita, fewest number of graduates per capita. We lead the nation. All those statistics. And yeah, we got 150 years of church activity on our reservations. On my little reservation, there's probably 20, 30,000 short-term missionaries come every summer. Year after year, decade after decade, but the conditions get worse. So as one guy was talking about Eurocentric commentary of the Bible, he says, why is it the Bible read through the lens of their culture is the Bible read correctly? So for our community, we're starting to do our theology. So there's about four or five of us. Uh, We're getting uh, PhDs, doctoral theological degrees from Asbury Seminary, from Fuller, from Regent. Because uh, we've got to be some smarty-pants Indians to keep up. We've got to help find ourselves, because nobody's helping find us. Where are we in the American church? Think about it. When was the last time you went to some big national Christian speakers conference, and you got all the, the speakers, and you got the, you know, the T.D. Jakes types, and then you got the whoever they might uh, want you to bind them, and all the white guys and the growing number of Asian folks and Hispanic Latino types. And, but when was the last time you saw a Native American as a national speaker at some national conference? You probably never have. But we got four centuries of missions. Come on, baby, do some math here. 500 years of active, ongoing, intentional effort to win. Where are we? We're not even on the radar of the American evangelical church, except the mission field. So you know where it says in, in, in uh, I think it was 1 Corinthians 12, that the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the hand can't say to the feet, I don't. I think the Euro-American church has said to the Native American church, we don't need you. So the church says to us, what do you have that we need? We got all the money. We got all the power. We got all the curriculum. We got all the institute. What do you have that we need? So then it says after that, it says those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, perception. Those parts that seem to be weaker are actually deserving of even greater honor. A higher place of prominence. 
but because of clashing worldview values. So if you look at a thing and you can't identify value in it, then you have no perceived sense of need for it. And if we have no perceived sense of need for it, then we get along without it. And that's what the American church does to us. So here, last story, then I'm going to quit. I've used up all my white man minutes. And now uh, I'm transitioning into my last couple of Indian minutes. Because uh, white man minutes, they're like dictatorial and non-negotiable and exact and linear. And, and uh, whereas Indian minutes are long-suffering and compassionate and kind and forgiving. And so I think our minutes are way more biblical uh, than Western linear, mostly orthodox evangelical Christian minutes. Um, so there's an example of worldview clashings right there. So, um, so last story. So this big deal in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the Cornelius' house. All these people come to faith. It's the first time he's ever preached to colored folks. He's crossed the Mason-Dixon line to go into the home of Cornelius. Uh, so this is a whole new gig for him. He says, you guys got to realize I can be arrested because I'm preaching to you colored folks. We're not, I could, my folks, we don't associate with your kind of people. We don't marry. We don't socialize. We hear about it every Sunday in church. All my life I grew up, we, our kind of people don't associate with your kind of people. So now here he is in the home of all these Gentiles. So then they come to faith and they get baptized. They speak in tongues. And the story goes back to Judea, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. So when the apostles, the leaders of the church, hear the report that Gentiles come to faith, Peter goes, what do they do to Peter? They criticize them. Because he went into the home and they were colored folks. Come on, bro. You know we're not allowed to do that. What's got into your head? Why are you going into those people's homes anyway? You know all our lives, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa told us we don't associate. The Torah is preached in our synagogues. You know that us uh, uh, Jewish Hebrews have nothing to do with those Gentiles, especially those filthy half-breed dogs, those Samaritans. So Peter's got to go, oh, oh, hold on now. You know, if he could quote the Bible, he would have said, when one sinner comes to faith, all of heaven rejoices. What part did you not hear about all these people were translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? What part did you miss? Okay, that may be true, but we still, we don't mess with those kind of people. So their worldview, their, their culturally informed view of God's work had to be, began this radical deconstruction because though they could see, they couldn't see everything. And now they began to understand that the gospel is for Gentiles as well as for Jews. So Peter says in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. No partiality. He's no respect of persons, but he accepts all people equally. Those who love him, those who fear him, and those who do what's right. So that means we can do Indian dancing on our powwow drums and our regalia on Sunday mornings in the church because God inhabits the praises of his people and he has no cultural preferences. Amen? So... So uh, I'm going to be a good evangelical now and uh, 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 capitalize on capitalism. And so I wrote this book called One Church, Many Tribes, Following Jesus the Way God Made You, as an attempt to help the American church understand that we have some things, some worldview values that you desperately need 
the American church desperately needs if we're going to be able to develop a theology of otherness, an ethic of the neighbor, from our Teoshpaye concept that says we are all family. And this is a powerful book, not because I wrote it, but there's a lot of famous white guys that endorsed it, and, um, and that's all it takes. So, so here's my last thought. I want to invite you from this point on, when you think of Native Americans, to embrace a biblical notion of us being co-equal participants in the life, work, and mission of Jesus. From this day forward, I want you to stop thinking about us as the mission field, as those you need to go help, those you need to go to our reservations in the summer times. And I want you to think about where can we invite Native people into our story of new community. Not to go outreach to get them in here, but how can we go be a part of their story where they live so that their story can help us understand more of who God is. And in the process of this relationship, the shalom, then we can become the body of Christ. And then lastly, go to a powwow. Sung Sean, there's a powwow somewhere around here, right? Uptown. Okay, a couple places. How many of you have never been to a powwow? Well, let me do it again. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Um, I didn't mean to embarrass you because that's the Christian way. Um, so go to a powwow. Who are your neighbors? Where do the First Nations people that live? Not as an evangelistic field, but as those that God has called to walk together with you. So let me close with this song. In my language, it says, I'm walking with my Creator. The second line says, I'm walking with my Savior, Jesus. And the third line says, I'm walking on this road. Wani kie kichi ma wani hiru hei hei dai hiru hei hei do hiyo hai hai dei chanku le ye ma wani hiru hei hei dai hiru hei hei do so, Creator above, I thank you for the courage of the people here to cross all these natural, racial, social, economic barriers to come together to live out this new community in Jesus. Amen. Amen. We give Richard a big hand. One more thing I want you to do. Amen. Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. This morning uh, is our monthly communion Sunday. And as I was sitting there about entering into communion, in light of everything that Richard shared this morning, I thought it'd be really cool if you lead us in this time of communion. And, and, and share with us from your community and your context what communion means that as we enter into it, what would it mean for us to recognize a larger body of Christ and how you guys celebrate communion? So 
Would you mind doing that? I know it's a surprise for you. You didn't know I was going to do this, but lead us this time of communion. What does communion mean as we come and take the bread and the wine? What should we remember? All right. This, uh, this notion of mitako ye oyasi, all my relatives, Jesus lived that. God made it possible. So when Jesus came as a human being, uh, that we could find our way back to the beauty way. So when first man and first woman lived in shalom with the creator, there was no shame in the earth. And yet they thought in their own humanity they could conceive of a better way to live, and they rejected the beauty way. And they wandered off in darkness. And from that time until now, all the tribes of the earth have been lost in darkness, futilely trying to find their way home. And it broke the heart of the creator, so he came among us. To show us how to find again the beauty way. So creator came as a two-legged. And they still rejected him. He spoke to the wind and the waves and obeyed him. He brought dead people back to life. He spoke to diseases and he healed people miraculously. Because he was the creator. But his people still didn't believe him. So in this great act of love. This great sacrificial act. The creator allowed himself to be killed and nailed on a tree. And he visited all of creation, even the depths of creation. And when the creator came back to life, after three days in the cave, the creator became the Jesus way. So when I think about having communion, breaking the body, sharing in the cup of the Lord, it always speaks to me the sense of we are the community. And we don't speak the same language. We don't like the same music, maybe. We have different fashion preferences. Um, we may be really different theological constructs. But as long as we share in Jesus, this person of Jesus, then we can always be and have hope that what God did is possible in his fullest way as we share in him. Hear the word of the Lord. It's found in First Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So whoever eats his bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And then listen. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Recognize that what we are about to do it's not just an individual thing of thanking God for sending His Son. But as Richard reminded us today, that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection has enabled us to be a part of this body of Christ of which we are one. An interdependent, interconnected community. And as you take the bread, as you take the cup today, will you remember that by that very act, you are confessing and recognizing that you are not an isolated individual, 
but that you recognize that you are a part of a larger community, a family, the household of God, made up of eyes and ears and nose and hands and feet. God, help us to recognize that as we take these elements. Help us to recognize that we are a part of the many. Help us to recognize that it is your grace and mercy that has enabled us to look at Richard in the eyes and call him brother, and that he would be able to call us brothers and sisters. Help us to recognize that this is much bigger than just us. Help us to recognize that you, Jesus, have made this possible. So with deep gratitude and utter humility, we approach your table today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whenever you're ready, please come up. Various stations across the sanctuary. by the connection table join a community group please stop by and spend some time with us as we talk about housing issues in this city go forth empowered by the spirit know that you are part of a larger family of God thank God for who he is how he has created you you are not an accident you have a mission or purpose that he has given you live it out in boldness this week in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit have a great week you guys See you back here next Sunday.